HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. This week on Meet and 3, we're talking about the United States' biggest crop. It's corn. They will always tell you that corn is like their family. Corn is their family. You treat corn like you would treat your family. These subsidy programs are supposed to be for really dealing with unexpected things that happen to farmers. Although in practice, a lot of times farmers are actually paid farm subsidies for things that we can control and do expect. There's this constant warfare going on between the oil industry and the grain industry. Tune in to Meet and 3, available wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Beer Sessions Radio on Heritage Radio Network. We're recording remotely, and today is Tuesday, March 30th, 2021. Our theme tonight is Hops for Hospitality, and we've got some special guests from the New York City hospitality industry. And yes, there is a crisis in hospitality, but the the crew that we have today is going to tell you how we're going to make it through this. So let's go around the room. Uh, Start with Rachel. Please introduce yourself. Hey, I'm Rachel McGowan with uh, Boston Beer Company, Coney Island Brewery. That's great. Thanks so much for helping organize the show today. And we're looking forward to talking about your new initiative. Um, Andrew? Jimmy, my name is Andrew Ridgey. I am the executive director of the New York City Hospitality Alliance. We are a not-for-profit association that represents restaurants, bars, and nightclubs here in the five boroughs. And thank you, Andrew. You guys are a beacon of hope. And uh, Mitch? Hi, Mitch Banchek. I'm president of Eat, Drink, and Be Merry Hospitality, which owns and operates bars in New York City, Charleston, and Chicago. And I'm also the treasurer and one of the founders of the New York City Hospitality Alliance. That's great. So looking forward to talking to you tonight, Mitch. I really respect what you guys do. Um, So let's start with Rachel. Rachel, Hops for Hospitality. I I had, um, during Beer Week last month, I had some of the Coney Island beer crew on. And uh, this is is a big initiative that we wanted to talk about. So tell us about Hops for Hospitality, how you guys organized it, and um, a little more about why why we should support that cause. Yeah, absolutely. 
Uh, so the irony of this, of all of us being on this call together, um, is that I found out about the Hospitality Alliance by going into one of Mitch's bars. So I was going into Jake's and I noticed on, on the door of Jake's, there was a little sticker, a little logo for the New York City Hospitality Alliance. And um, I had never heard of them before. Um, shame on me. And uh, I did some research and, you know, saw that they were doing some really great stuff. This is pre-COVID um, for our industry. And, you know, the bars are, are basically uh, the beating heart of New York City and the beating heart of my industry being, you know, in sales for beer. Um, so researched the, the Hospitality Alliance and um, wound up starting to, to work with them and see how we could get more involved right before COVID hit. And then, um, you know, cue COVID, COVID comes in. And again, I just continue to see what um, Andrew and his team, Brittany and Savannah and the whole crew of the Alliance were doing. And I think as a company, we were looking for, you know, what can we do to help? How can we help New York City? How can we make a difference here? And when you're looking to make a difference, look no further than the Hospitality Alliance and everything that that team's been doing. So we put our thinking hats on. We came up with a program where um, basically every beer, every Coney Island in every facet, whether it's a pint at a bar, a six pack, a 12 pack sold at a grocery store, one dollar of every single purchase is going to go back to the Alliance for March, April and May. Um, and, and that's going to go right directly back to Andrew and his team to continue doing what they're doing and, and help our industry here in New York City. That's great. So let's go to Mitch. Mitch, you, you've got um, some really great bars. And uh, how did you come up with the names for them? Because I, I want to just just give a like, little background on just how important this industry is to our city. Well, each one was uh, sort of uh, inspired from uh, different means uh, we started with Down the Hatch, and uh, the bar has been there since 1991, and really took off after the first, you know, first week we opened, and we thought we were onto something with, uh, you know, with with names like that. Um, and since then, we basically would have naming contests amongst friends and family, and we would tell people about the new concept and where it was going to be located, what it was going to look like, and then we would sort of open it up to to our, our friends and family, and uh, we would get hundreds, if not thousands, of names to choose from, and we'd form a committee of the managers and operators and decide which we thought fit the the location the best. That's great. Will you run through, so your, your group's called Fun Bars. Just run through some of the names, because I, I, I want to put you in the right light. Yeah, it's actually, it's, it's Eat, Eat, Be Merry Hospitality, but the first, first place was Down the Hatch. The second place was actually a place called Moe's Caribbean, which is now the Stumble Inn, uh, <laughs> which is a good local neighborhood bar in the Upper East Side. Uh, the third place was Jake's Dilemma, and that bar was built at a time when microbreweries were just becoming popular in the mid-'90s. And the logo is a guy sitting at a bar, sort of scratching his face, looking at a tremendous selection of different microbrewery beers. And that's Jake's Dilemma as to what <laughs> And then the next bar was the Gin Mill, which is sort of just like, you know, a generic name for a bar. And it's also on the Upper West Side. It's sort of your local gin mill. And then uh, in the village, we have Off the Wagon, which we thought was pretty kitschy. And it's been there for 23 years, so people seem to like it. Uh, and then we opened up the 13th Step, um, which we actually checked out with some of our friends that were in AA just to make sure it wasn't too offensive. And they thought it was very funny. So we went with that, and that's actually down a few steps to walk into the place. So it's got a good name that goes with the concept. And then the next one is Three Sheets, which is 
three sheets to the wind, which is an old term meaning that you've had a little too much to drink. And then the last one we opened up was Hair of the Dog. And I think everybody on this call knows what. <laughs> so, so Mitch, that, that is great. I, I think I want to get to the point of just how important these kind of local wa- watering holes are to the city. Um, what, why did you get involved in the Hospitality Alliance? Well, uh, previous to the Hospitality Alliance, I was involved with the, with the New York City Nightlife Association. And we were a branch of the New York State Restaurant Association. And we soon learned that the bars, nightclubs, and taverns had different needs than the restaurant industry. So, you know, we, we, we branched off to form the New York City Night, uh, to, to form the New York City Hospitality Alliance, which encompassed our needs as well as the needs of other restaurants. We felt that New York State wasn't exactly representing the needs of the people in the city as well as it could because they had they had a different agenda than we did. Most of the time, our our uh, our thoughts were aligned, but there were many times where um, the city had a different set of needs than the rest of the state because it's really a different animal operating bars in New York City than it is in Albany or Nassau County. Uh, so that that's why I got involved. That's a great intro. Uh, Andrew, so just tell us how important are these local watering holes to the economy and the life and the culture of the city? Yeah, well, listen, first, it's the economic impact. I mean, New York City's restaurants and bars pre-pandemic, there's about 25,000 of them in the five boroughs, and they employ about 325,000 New Yorkers. And these are people from all walks of life, you know, many of whom who have degrees from colleges, other people who may not even be able to find a job elsewhere in the workforce. So I think we're one of those industries where, you know, you speak with many owners or general managers, and they started at an entry-level position and now are, like I said, the GM or own their own place. And I think that's unique to our industry. And we generate, you know, tens of billions of dollars in economic activity every single year. But it's also part of the social and cultural fabric. I mean, when you're listening to Mitch talk about his beers, these are like neighborhood places where people love to go out and socialize. We really are not only places to go eat and drink, but we're also places where you socialize and you create memories. And New York City is not New York City without our restaurants and bars. And that's why I've been saying since the beginning of the pandemic is the only way New York City fully recovers is if our restaurants and bars and nightlife are at the core of that recovery. I mean, imagine New York City without all the amazing places to eat and drink. It would not be New York City. So we're part of the economic foundation, but also the social cultural landscape of the city. And I feel like no matter what you do, even if you're not in the industry, you relate to eating, drinking, socializing. So everyone has a connection, whether it was a first date or a last date or a birthday party or just getting together with friends for happy hour after work. Everyone's connected to the city. And I think that's why people stay here. That's why people move here. That's why people visit here. And uh, we're just part of the fabric of the city. I mean, if you go around the world and ask anyone, you know, about New York City, they'll probably make some comment about the great places to eat and drink. That's so true. And Rachel, um, let's just hear your backstory because you are like a, a very important person in the hospitality industry. Just tell us how you got started and, you know, how you rose up in the ranks to, to have the job you do now with Coney Island Beer. 
Yeah. So I, I actually started my beer career about um, 10 years ago now, right out of college. I started working for um, North American breweries, which at the time was North American breweries at the time. They shipped me out from my, my uh, New York living and I moved out to Oregon for a while, worked for them for about two years and um, met somebody who worked for Boston Beer um, and uh, realized that I wanted to work for Boston Beer. So I moved over, got a chance to come back to New York and um, cut my teeth with the company uh, in Brooklyn and Staten Island. And that was right around the time um, that we uh, that we bought Coney Island and started working with, you know, started the partnership with the brewery there. So I've been um, selling Coney Island since inception. And I, that was when I was in my, my street level role, meeting with bar owners and restaurateurs, um, a few years after that, got a district manager role and moved back out to California and was uh, working with our company out there for a few years. And then uh, about four years ago, came back to New York and was working in our on-premise national chains, uh, working with both you know the likes of Buffalo Wild Wings to someone like Mitch with with his bars and restaurants here being a, a large um, buying group and an important buying group here in New York City locally. Um, and then, uh, as of the beginning of this year, I, um, took on a new role as area manager where I'm managing a team covering the five boroughs. And, um, our, our main goal is to just to provide support to, um, bars and restaurants here in New York city. So with this hops for hospitality, you know, initiative, what, what are you seeing? Like, are, are you seeing the future in New York? Are you seeing, that things are not the way you expected them to be in terms of who's buying these beers. And I don't know, you, you, you got a pretty good sense of, of who's buying what in the city and if things are going to be different. Yeah. I think, uh, I think right now we've seen a few things happening, right? Like one thing that we've been talking about for a long time to, to bar owners is, um, looking at a reduction of draft lines and, and you don't need a hundred beers to satisfy the guests, right? You could have, 10 or even less really well-made beers that are crafted and, and fit the consumer needs. And I think we're seeing, especially due to COVID, you could save money and you could also appeal to your guests and, and basically have the same satisfaction coming out of it. So I think as people are starting to rebuy and have just started to recently open their doors, we're seeing that come into effect where when you would pre-COVID walk into a bar, you might see four, five, six IPAs on a draft tower. Now you might only need two and it might be a, a local IPA and then it might be a national IPA that fits both guest needs. So um, from a Coney Island perspective, I think uh, we started off with the Mermaid Pilsner as our flagship and now we have our Merman IPA and launched that a few years back and it quickly became one of one of the best-selling IPAs here in New York City. And uh, I think it, it, it hits that for many consumers where it's just super easy drinking IPA, um, but lends to kind of that local aspect as well. Yeah. Hey Mitch. Um, so when you had Jake's dilemma, was that, was that like the first real craft beer bar that you guys opened? Yes. Yes, it was. And how are you seeing things changing right now? Are, are you guys making plans for, for, for modifying your operations or your menu for the future? Um, not really. You know, we still offer, uh, very large selection of beers at, at all my places, but especially Jake's. And it's still, it's a concept that's withheld the, the test of time. Um, as you know, Rachel said, we do a tremendous amount of business with Boston Beer. They have a lot of different products that they offer, and they sell very well at my stores. Oh, that's great. Uh, Andrew, is there a crisis of hospitality right now? And what, what are the biggest things that you have to focus on 
It's the economic crisis. I mean, if you would have told me a year ago that we would be having this conversation in one year, I and everyone would have thought, you know, we were nuts. I remember when we first got shut down, it was first, you know, there's a pandemic coming, but New York's okay. Everyone go out, support your restaurants, your bars, other small businesses. Then all of a sudden it was, all right, starting on Friday, we're going to have to reduce occupancy to 50%. Then a few hours later, it was like, okay, I think on Tuesday, we're going to have to shut down. Then a day before it said, no, on Monday, we're going to have to shut down. And the only thing that's been certain over the past year is all the uncertainty. I mean, I mentioned before, pre-pandemic, there were about 325,000 jobs in the city's restaurants and bars. There's still more than 140,000 of those jobs missing. Um, So we are in a jobs crisis. We don't know exactly how many restaurants and bars we've lost, but we suspect the number's in the thousands. People often say, well, how many places have closed? I think the question is how many places are actually being kept open artificially? And that's because the state has a moratorium on commercial evictions. The city has a law that suspends the enforcement of personal liability guarantees and leases. And the combination of those two policies have basically allowed people to stay in their spaces for much longer than they would have been able to in a normal world when they couldn't pay rent. And with the reduced occupancy and then we're opening and then we're shutting indoor dining and the back and forth, it's just caused so much trauma. I think finally, and I'm still cautious, but I am somewhat optimistic that there's a light at the end of the tunnel now. It doesn't look like it's a train coming to smack us head on, but you know, there's still going to be a lot more that needs to be done. We're waiting for the new restaurant relief fund to release the money. That's going to be huge to help people pay rent, payroll, you know, vendor expenses, because it's not just like the bar and restaurant owners and the workers, you know, think about people like Rachel and the whole economic ecosystem that relies on on a vibrant bar and restaurant industry, the farmers upstate we purchase our produce from, the sales rep where we're buying our beer, all these, the plumbers, the electricians, the florists, you name it. I mean, they all rely on a vibrant restaurant, bar, nightlife industry. So we're starting to come back slowly. I think there's definitely a long recovery in front of us, but the fundamentals are strong. I mean, I'm still bullish on cities um, because people want to eat. They want to drink. They want to socialize, especially after they've been cooped up in their apartments for, you know, a year now. So I think once we can really get back to like pre-pandemic activity and socializing, you know, it's going to be like the roaring 20s. We just need to try to get as many of these small businesses that were operating before and during the pandemic to the other side to enjoy it and not straddle them with so much debt and so much liability over the last year that it's impossible for them to ever pull out. Yeah. And hey, Mitch, when you, you helped co-found the Hospitality Alliance, um, just tell us more about your involvement and the, the, the issues that you're, you're talking about with the Alliance on your own. Uh, well, when we started, it was basically uh, myself and our, uh, our attorney, Robert Bookman and, and Paul Steers. And we came up with like an initial operating budget and figured out what we would need to operate the organization for three years without actually having any dues paying members. Because we felt like it was important to have an organization for people to join and not just ask individual operators 
to join something that really wasn't, that didn't have a solid foundation yet. So uh, some of the larger and better operators in the city, as well as uh, many of our suppliers, liquor companies, beer companies, uh, uh, companies like NCR and Echolab, all ponied up $25,000 a year for three years, which gave us enough to have our start. Um, we're, at that point, we were able to hire Andrew as our executive director. And then slowly but surely, Andrew built a team under him, which allowed the Hospitality Alliance to really thrive. And from the very beginning, uh, the Hospitality Alliance had an incredible amount of credibility because of who was involved with it. And we became quickly the go-to organization for the city government to come to when they were uh, formulating bills and passing laws. And, and then shortly after, candidates started coming to us to do fundraising for them. And we uh, have had since the beginning and maintain an incredible amount of credibility in the city. Uh, And that is obviously very beneficial to all all operators, um, but, you know, especially people that that need the help of the alliance that are sort of more uh, individual operators, you know, that don't have access to some of, uh, you know, some things that, you know, larger organizations have. And the Alliance at this point offers a tremendous amount of member benefits, as well as expertise in just general operating, as well as expertise in the field of employment, and labor law, and liquor laws. So it was a very necessary organization uh, to start. I'm very proud to be a part of it. Andrew does a tremendous job in, in running it and leading the charge. And uh, the board has been very supportive in, in his efforts. On that note, Mitch or Andrew, last year, what was impressive about the Hospitality Alliance was that very quickly, you guys put together all the points that were important for, for hospitality operators uh, related to the pandemic and you know what you needed to ask from the government. Who worked on those? And, and were many of those initiatives or, or you know pitch, pitches that you guys had already been working on Yeah. Well, I mean, it was really a team effort. You know, like Mitch said, there's just incredible brain trust of people from all different aspects, whether it's liquor law or whether it's labor law or the political world. And then our members who are operators who could basically tell us what their immediate challenges are and what they need information about. So it was really just around the clock effort trying to pull together as much information as possible, provide it to people in real time in a way that is as easy as possible to understand. I mean, a lot of this stuff is really complicated because things were changing so quickly, it was hard for people to keep a grasp on it. So we had our team, you know, from labor law to liquor licensing to our whole government affairs team really in the thick of it in constant calls with the Cuomo administration, the de Blasio administration, on the phone with Schumer's office, uh, Senator Schumer's office, you know, talking about all of these issues. I mean, there was a lot of frustration because This was uncharted territory. You know, things were happening so quickly. We needed support immediately. As anyone who's ever dealt with government or observed government, those wheels tend to move very slowly. So we really had to ring the alarm, be on TV, radio, and the press constantly to make sure that our issues were front and center. So 
you know, wherever the information needed to come from, whether it was from a, you know, employment law firm, whether it was from government, whether it was from someone like Rob Bookman to talk about liquor licensing issues, you know, we really had the inside track, gave that information to people as soon as possible. And then throughout the process, hearing from people like Mitch and others about what are the biggest challenges right now and what should we be addressing? So things like the moratorium on commercial evictions, that was something that came up immediately. Uh, for restaurants that were doing a lot of takeout and delivery or many who had to pivot, like, you know, pivot's the word of the year, I guess, um, <laughs> who weren't doing a lot of takeout and delivery, but because they were closed for indoor and outdoor dining could only do it, we got the third party delivery fee cap in place because companies like Grubhub and Seamless were basically exploiting the industry pre-pandemic with fees that range, you know, up to 30% or more of each order. So they were like taking more per order than the actual restaurant was earning. So a lot of the stuff that we had been working on that we got enacted, some of them were policies that we were pushing for pre-pandemic, but I guess then we had the momentum because of the pandemic to get them done. Some of these policies are temporary. But then there are things like the Outdoor Dining Open Restaurants Program, which has been incredibly successful. Uh, early on in the pandemic, uh, Corey Johnson, who's the Speaker of the City Council, and I co-authored an op-ed in Cranes talking about how we need to reimagine public space. And we knew we'd have limited or no indoor occupancy in our bars and restaurants. So how could we get more occupancy outdoors? And bam, we created the Open Restaurants Outdoor Dining Program. A few weeks after we published that op-ed, I was sitting at City Hall, socially distant from the mayor, doing a press conference announcing this program. And since then, about 11,000 bars and restaurants are participating in outdoor dining. You know, it was responsible for hiring back about 100,000 people who had lost their jobs since mid-March when we had to shut down. And I think when it started in June... Not only was it the economic factors that were so important, but also it brought back a energy and vitality to the city streets that was so important. I mean, if you remember that time, people had just been in their apartments for months already and they just needed to get out. And this is a way they could do it in a safe, socially distant way, support local businesses, get to eat some good food, drink some good beers, hopefully a bunch of Coney Islands and others. <laughs> and, uh, you know, uh kind of feel a little bit normal and a, and a little bit human. And that program was so popular that it has now been made permanent. So we're currently working with City Hall and the council on creating what the permanent open restaurants, outdoor dining program will look like. And I mean, I was just looking at something like out in Brooklyn on Vanderbilt Avenue. It's gorgeous. I mean, who would have thought pre-pandemic that we would have been taking over parking spots or even shutting down full streets so people can put these beautiful outdoor dining installations out there? It's really, I think, helped not only the economy, but creates a more livable city. And, you know, and, th and that's been a goal. You know, I keep citing there's that old Winston Churchill quote, don't let a good crisis go to waste. So amongst all the doom and gloom of this pandemic, how do we use the momentum that we have to rebuild a stronger city and a better restaurant, bar, and nightlife industry that's more supportive of small business owners and more vibrant. Well, Andrew, you're right on, you know, that what if. It's like, you know, how many times did you walk down Orchard Street on a Sunday or, you know, Mulberry Street and have businesses outdoors on the streets? Um, 
it's really amazing that that you guys got that. Uh, I can't. I still can't believe you got outdoor dining put through. You you, you never thought that would happen in New York. And never, it, not in a million years. It, it's really going to tie into what we're talking about next. Is just this revival of Manhattan. But before we talk about that, I want to go back to Rachel and Mitch and just talk about the importance of the sales reps. You know, because there's this connection. Not only there's you know electricians and and suppliers and everyone. It's the reps from. To me, the reps from the beer companies in particular that are really this glue uh, of, of bars. Um, do you want to talk about your, the team that you work with, Rachel? Yeah, of course. So we have here covering, uh, covering the boroughs alone uh, about 16 or 17 people that, that touch just the five boroughs for, for Coney Island. Um, and I think, you know, to your point, when I, if I were in Mitch's shoes, um, I would be looking for somebody who's not only going to sell me great beer and, you know, offer me great products at a good price and, um, come in with some reasonable support. But I think it, it is the relationship and it is, who is that, that guy or gal that's coming in and supporting their products locally, who's going to come into Jake's and, and throw a few back with you and, and know your bartenders and know your team and know in a time like this, what you need and be asking constantly, even when your doors weren't open, what can we do to support and how can we help? Um, and to me, I preach that with our team every single day that comes, you know, from, from Jim cook down, we, we Boston beer company, Coney Island, our number one goal is to be not only a consultant to, to the operators, but also a, a good partner, a long-term partner. Um, and I try to try to live and breathe that every day. And Mitch, want to talk about just the importance of different sales reps to, to your businesses? Because I think that's an over, overlooked job in, in these times. And I always remember just how important they were to every aspect of my restaurant. 100%. What Rachel said is very much true uh, in that we look for relationships. We look for relationships with beer companies and the beer reps who come into our place and you know, you know, know the bartenders and know the managers and are there for support when we have special events. Um, they're there at our anniversary parties. They're there at our street fairs. And that's something that goes a long way with my, myself and my organization. I know that my guys that do all the direct buying from the beer companies, they, you know, they're very, they're, they're loyal. They're loyal to the people that are loyal to us. That's great. So we're going to take a short break. We'll be back in a few minutes on Beer Sessions Radio. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Roberta's was founded in Bushwick in 2008 and has become one of the most iconic restaurants in the country. HRN made its home inside of Roberta's in 2009, and together they have become part of the DIY fabric of the neighborhood. Roberta's, the pizza restaurant, is open for lunch and dinner seven days a week and serves much more than just the famous wood-fired pizzas. Their team dreams up new salads, pastas, and sandwiches on the regular. Roberta's Tiki Bar is alive and well in the back garden, serving up frozen drinks in the summer and hot toddies in the winter. Stop by the bakery and takeout spot next door for fresh breads, sticky buns, and pizzas to go. And of course, there's the two Michelin-starred Blanca tucked away in the garden for truly daring diners. But Roberta's also extends beyond Bushwick, with multiple locations in New York City and now in Los Angeles. You can also find their frozen pies in grocery stores around the country. The spirit of Roberta's, like Heritage Radio Network, is everywhere. Here's to many more years of pizza-powered radio. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. 
Hey, hey, welcome back to Beer Sessions Radio on Heritage Radio Network. Support us and become a member at heritageradionetwork.org. So we're talking about the Hops for Hospitality program uh, with the crew from Coney Island Beer and New York City Hospitality Alliance. So, Andrew, uh, a little earlier we had talked about there's a big article in the Times the other day about you know, is Manhattan, you know, going to come back? I believe it is, but I want to hear your take on it because with things like outdoor dining and, you know, if anything more than ever, um, I, I don't think New York city is going away. I'm bullish on New York city, uh, Manhattan. Um, you know, I didn't say it. Multiple people have said it, that New York city's obituary has been written many times over and the authors are always wrong. You know, we constantly come back Every crisis, if you go back to 9-11, if you go to the financial crisis, if you go to Superstorm Sandy, and now this, uh, we always come back and we always come back stronger. I mean, the most important thing I always like to preface it when we have these discussions is, you know, there's been a lot of doom and gloom. People have lost so much. They've lost their businesses. They've tried exhausting their personal savings to keep their places afloat. Some people are staying afloat. Others have lost it all. So there's a real horror story and we shouldn't gloss over that. But long term, as I said before, eating, drinking, socializing, that's in the DNA of cities. That's in the DNA of humans. That's always going to come back. I think that desire, that need is going to be stronger than ever on the other side of this because people are going to want to catch up in person. You know, as great as Zoom is and as great as WebEx and all these other tools are, it can't, you know, it's, it's not the human connection. And what we create in bars and restaurants is that human connection in addition to just the eating and drinking. Um, so I think it's going to come back. I think that people are always going to be looking at, well, this company is going to downsize their office space. People are going to be working remotely. Yeah, there's some good stuff about working remotely. But like at the end of the day, do people for the next year, 10 years want to just like sit in their apartment and work? And I think there's so many downsides to that. I mean, if you're working in an office, how do you get more experience? How do you grow through the ranks? How do you get opportunities by being in an office, going out to meetings like certain things and interactions don't happen? happen online. So I think there's going to be a huge need for it. I think people are going to come back to cities. I'm hoping there's going to be like a correction. You know, the real estate market's going down. So maybe that's going to create people and opportunities for people to open up new bars, new restaurants that maybe pre-pandemic they wouldn't have the resources to do. Um, so I think there is a lot of opportunity. It's going to take a little bit of time. It's not going to happen overnight. And it's not going to happen just because it's going to happen. It's going to take vision. It's going to take leadership. It's going to take action. You know, you can't just talk about it. You have to be about it. Um, I think there's some good stuff happening. Obviously, the outdoor dining, open restaurants program. There's some open culture stuff where you can see like performances and music outside. But I think we need to quadruple down on all that stuff. You know, so instead of the conversations being like, you know, I was in Midtown and it was just so quiet and no one was there and the office buildings were at less than 15 percent occupancy. We need a campaign to really change that conversation. Like, how cool would it be if randomly out of nowhere, you know, the original cast of Hamilton's like doing a performance in Herald Square or if like in some basketball court, you get a bunch of Knicks and Nets players like playing a pickup game or some opera singer sticks their head out of a window <laughs> in Midtown and starts singing. And like that becomes the conversation like, oh, shit. Oh, can I curse on here? 
Um, you know, I, I saw, <laughs> you know, some, I just saw some crazy performance in Midtown. And I think that creates a vibe. I think we also need to get leaders of the city to publicly be out there and saying, this is my commitment to the city. The one thing that's been a little bit disappointing compared to past tragedies is that there hasn't been as much of a rallying cry, in my opinion, on leaders to like come back to the city. And I guess that dynamic is different because it's a pandemic, so it's not like just come back. But even if you remember post 9-11, people were so scared to come into the city. It was like we were waiting for the next attack and everything. So I think even if people aren't ready this moment to bring people back fully to their offices um, or just start going on public transportation, I think we need people who are viewed as leaders to be out there and setting an example and encouraging others. And my one concern is that there has been too much doom and gloom and a lot of talk is like, oh no, I can just have people work remotely. It doesn't matter if they're in, you know, Arkansas or Ohio, like they can work for my New York City company. It's like they can, but they're not going to have that experience. So I'm still bullish. I have no doubt that we're going to come back. I think it takes leadership. It takes action. It's going to take policies, but we'll come back. And I think those people who are committed to the city now, I hope will be the ones that benefit from it in the long term. So since you mentioned, you know, positive stories, let's each talk about a neighborhood where something cool is happening. Uh, I want to talk about the East Village because that's where, where my places have been and there's a great group, Avima, which is our East Village Independent Merchants Association. And there's some very cool things happening with some of the open streets. Um, you know, old old school leaders like McSorley's did the open dining. There's a lot going on in those neighborhoods. And um, I'm really proud of it. There's going to be an Easter hat uh, virtual event in Tompkins Square Park on on this Sunday. So, Mitch, what about you at, at your bars or neighborhoods? Tell us something cool that's going on. Um, well, you know, uh, I would I can't really say anything specifically, but the outdoor dining has been a real a real blessing, and I think it really has changed this streetscape in New York City, um, especially uh, at my place on the Upper East Side, the Stumble Inn. We have eighty seats outside. We only had sixty eight seats inside. So wow, that's my God. <laughs> not not counting the bar, of course. But it's it's really been it's been a lifesaver, um, especially now that. The outdoor dining is able to be operated in conjunction with indoor dining. Um, you know, it was always meant to be a supplement, uh, but over the winter, of course, we weren't allowed to have indoor dining. And now that both are, you know, sort of in full session or in, well, indoor at 50 percent and outdoor at you know, full capacity, it feels busy. And people are really enjoying uh, dining outside, even when it's not so warm outside. And they also love being back inside. And between the two, it's, you know, it's got this a buzz. There's energy in the place again. So it's really, it's really beneficial all around. I can't really uh, point out one particular neighborhood that's doing anything different than, than the other neighborhoods that I operate in. But, you know, overall, it's sort of the, the uh, uh, it's, it, it's great for everybody. Do you think, are you going to be back at full employment? We'll be back at full employment when we're back at full capacity. You know, right now we're still fairly lean and mean, uh, which we sort of have to be, uh, even though we have a decent amount of outdoor seating. But with 50% occupancy inside and the curfew, we still are far from full employment. So is, do you think that there's a myth? I've heard some people say, oh, I can't hire anyone because people are on unemployment and they don't want to come back to work. 
No, that's not a myth. That's that's true. We actually we have issues with that um, on a on a daily basis in terms of getting people mostly for like back of the house, uh, the front of the house. People, you know, uh, are lining up at the door to to work, but it's been difficult for for us to get back of the house people uh, in, in the door. Yeah, and Jimmy, just to chime in, I mean, what I've heard from a lot of people too is hiring back, you know, especially more on like the server and bartender front is, you know, oh, I moved back to North Carolina to stay with my parents or a lot of people that were working in the industry or maybe they're going to school here or they're in the arts, you know, actor, actresses, um, they went back when the pandemic hit to wherever they were originally from. So, you know, I think we need to give people reasons to come back because, our industry is so directly related to the creative class as well. I mean, if you look at the demographics of the workforce, I mean, so many people maybe working in a bar restaurant's not their career, but it's something that's been so critically important where they can bartend a couple nights a week at Mitch's place while they're going to school, or maybe they're looking for their next big gig on Broadway and supplement their income. Um, and I think there's so many examples like that. So I think bringing back the workforce is going to be very interesting and in how that's going to play out over the more kind of mid and long term. Great. And then, uh, Rachel, t- t- tell us about a neighborhood or a happening that, that you've, you find really positive right now, um, something that will cheer us up. Yeah. I'm, I live Upper West, and I, I, Andrew could probably put some, put some numbers or some stats to this, but walking around up here, I feel like I've seen a tremendous amount of new entrants taking over empty storefronts that might have been empty even pre-COVID. And just seeing new concepts come in and entirely new operators that I think you were saying it earlier, Andrew, just people that seem hungry and and ready to get after it coming into New York that maybe this is their first venture. Um, I've seen a, a handful of new things popping up that I'm keeping track of on my little places to eat notepad. And um, I'm just excited to get out and, and check some of these spots out. I've been doing the outdoor thing and with the weather getting even nicer and now with indoor reopening, um, I, I'm very excited to see what that looks like. But Andrew, you would know better than I would. You're, you're up here too. Yeah. I mean, we're all in the Upper West. So for example, what we ate when we ate at Mermaid Inn, on you know, the Upper yep. West here. I mean, I remember on Amsterdam, back in, I mean, it was for months, basically before mid or end of June when outdoor dining started, you know, you could just look down and walk down the middle of Amsterdam Avenue and there was nothing. There was no one. I mean, you could just walk and walk with your eyes closed. And there were just no cars. Um, and it's really been transformed both sides of the avenue, restaurants, bars. Mitch obviously has places up here. Um, and it was just exciting and it brought an energy back. And now one of the local uh, business improvement di- districts, the uh, Columbus uh, Avenue bid, they have some like outdoor art where they basically got local artists to populate some empty storefronts and some storefronts uh, with paintings and different artwork. Um, So I think just being in the neighborhood on the Upper West Side, particularly because it is a neighborhood, you know, people live here. We don't have as many tourists, not that there's that many tourists coming to the city now. It's just a nice way to be able to bump into people in the street and be like, oh my God, how, you know, how's it going? And seeing the activity. So I love the Upper West. Uh, You know, I've been over the East Village. There's great stuff there. I think I mentioned, you know, Vanderbilt Avenue uh, out in Brooklyn. They've done incredible stuff. Um, Up in Harlem, you know, we did with the famous Rockwell group, the architecture group, uh, outdoor dining program where we 
basically got funded these outdoor dining structures. And we did them up at Harlem, uh, at Melba's Restaurant, who's our president. And it's just beautiful up there. We did a full street takeover on Mott Street down in Chinatown. And it's like a communal outdoor dining structure. So you can get food from any of the local restaurants and go and sit down. And it's really like transformed a little block in Chinatown into this festival, you know, festive place um, that's just walkable, livable, and so enjoy enjoyable, especially compared to what it was like, you know, earlier in the pre in the pandemic and pre-pandemic. So I think there's so much of that no matter what neighborhood you go to. And it's something that's gonna hopefully now continue uh, into the future and be permanent. Well, that's a great point. I, um, definitely like the evolution of the outdoor structures and, and outdoor dining layout uh, has really been interesting to watch. Um, where is that going, you know, w with regulations? You know, what, what of that is going to be around next year? What is the structure requirements, you know, the design, any design highlights? Sure. Well, so the current open restaurants program is temporary. That runs through October. Between now and October, which we are working on with the city, I think I mentioned it before, is creating, you know, the specific rules and guidelines. So the idea is restaurants will be able to use the sidewalk and they'll be able to use the roadway curb space, basically the parking spots. Those will be subject to distant limitations like they currently are. You know, if there's a bus stop, you need to have the right amount of space so it's accessible uh, under the American Disability Act and some other requirements. Um, but I think it's going to look generally similar. I think a lot of the structures that have built, been built, those won't exist in their current form. We'll have to see what the specific requirements are in the future. You know, things are going to have to be sturdy. You know, the thing about this current program was we're in the middle of a crisis. People don't have money to spend a lot. Um, it was kind of put up really quickly as a means of survival. But then you see some places that actually were able to invest money and put some more thought into it. And you're like, wow, it's really transformed what the sidewalk and roadway look like. So um, while all the specific rules and guidelines haven't been released, those will hopefully be done by October, it'll look something similar. Sidewalk seating, roadway seating, you know, subject to those specific limitations. But I'm hoping they'll be even further beautified with plants and other types of amenities that really help bring that area to life. Um, what about enforcement? I, I know that with the spring, I've, I've heard that it, there are a number of inspectors out, building department inspectors. First of all, which agencies are inspecting the outdoor dining and how are we going to better manage that? So the outdoor dining now is currently uh, the responsibility falls to the Department of Transportation. Pre-pandemic, it was the Department of Consumer Affairs that licensed sidewalk cafes. I think the permanent program will probably be overseen by the Department of Transportation. That's all still being defined. Um, but listen, it's been a mess because 
we're in a pandemic. There weren't enough inspectors. These are new regulations. You have the city, you have the state. There's politics between the city and the state and who does what and how do they do that. Anyone that's been operating a bar or restaurant knows that the rules had been constantly changing. A lot of the rules and requirements weren't clear. So people felt like you're damned if you do, damned if you don't. I'm hoping that in the future, the permanent program will be very clear. There'll be more of a approval process. So whatever someone ultimately sets up on the sidewalk or in the roadway will have been approved. So it's not like they're just self-certifying something, putting it up, and then an inspector comes and says, oh, no, you have to do this or you have to do that. Or, you know, a couple of weeks later, they retroactively change the requirement and say, yeah, we said you could do this last week, but you can't do that anymore. So there's a lot to be done on that front. But we are also working on a bill in the city council, which is really like once in a generation opportunity when it comes to rules, regulations, but particularly violations and fines. You know, there's various different agencies. They all issue different fines. And before the pandemic, you would speak with bar and restaurant owners and they would say it felt like any time an inspector came in, it was their job just to issue you violations. They felt like, you know, our industry was an ATM for the city. And we had seen this over years by the tens of millions of dollars fines had increased. But we have a bill in the city council that we have a lot of momentum for that would identify the hundreds, if not thousands of different fines and violations that are issued to restaurants and bars and other small businesses. And basically identifying all those violations that do not pose an immediate hazard to the public or workers. And for all those violations, we would allow a warning or a cure period before a violation is issued. So essentially, an inspector would come in and say, you know, that's a violation. This is why it's a violation. This is how you correct it. And we're giving you a warning. And if we come back in six months and it hasn't been corrected, well, then we will issue you a fine. And we really think that would help change the dynamic and make it so the focus is on education, training, and compliance first, and penalties and fines as a last resort. And that would apply, we hope, to not only outdoor dining, but, you know, health department, department of buildings. Uh, Interestingly enough, the fire department historically has given a lot of warnings and cure periods to businesses to fix stuff. Um, And they're dealing with life and safety issues. So if they could do it successfully, you know, why can't we apply the same thing to a violation from the health department for a dimly lit light bulb in a storage closet somewhere or, you know, a potted plant on a sidewalk cafe that grew over the allowable height requirements, you know, because it's sunny and that's what plants do in the summer. They grow like you could easily say. You know, you have to trim that before well, you just You're right fire. about the what ifs because that, that's a really important conversation. I remember saying that for years that, yeah, the fire department would come in and give you a warning, usually have 30 days to cure something. And it could have been like you had too many chairs for your occupancy that, that you know, you, you're right. They, they, they may be important, but the way they handled it was, was really good. So I'm, I'm really happy that you talked about that. Just wanting back to Rachel. Rachel, just tell us one more time about the initiative and uh, maybe a few favorite establishments that are participating in Hops for Hospitality. Sure, yeah. So the the quick and dirty on it is a dollar from every Coney Island pint or six pack or twelve pack 
is going to go back to the New York City Hospitality Alliance, Andrew and his team, to continue fostering um, all the great things that you've heard over the last hour. Um, and that's going through the rest of March, April, and May. So everything through May 31st. And that, in that includes uh, beer sold at our tap room down in Coney Island. Um, we have almost at this point, we have a, a little over 75 total participating bars and restaurants, and um, we just opened it up to grocery stores as well. So we're expecting a lot more participation because everyone wants to help New York City. Everybody wants to help restaurants and bars and, and our hospitality industry. So um, right now, I would say a handful of participating locations um, are, of course, Mitch's locations. We have Jake's and Jen, and I think a, a handful of others are, are coming on board in the next um, few weeks here. Some of my others um, that, that have recently jumped on and wanted to participate, uh, Stout. So all, all of the Stout locations, um, Rivercrest out in Queens. We have Kettle Black in Bay Ridge, one of my favorite bars. Um, I, I, uh, we just jumped on with um, Fairway Grocery Stores. So starting in April, you'll be able to pick up a six-pack at any of their locations and uh, and um, support the program as well. Um, yeah, those are those are just a few off the top of my head, but hopefully a lot more to come. Yeah, and Jimmy, if I could just jump in and just say, I mean, Rachel and Coney Island and the whole Boston Beer team, I mean, they've been so incredible. We have been out there, the Hospitality Alliance, just fighting around the clock for the future of our industry. And when I said earlier about the economic ecosystem that revolves around the bars and restaurants, it, it, it's so true. And it really takes partners like this that support our efforts because the more successful we are, the more successful they are. And I think it's really a partnership and we're just grateful to have partners like Rachel and her whole team. So I hope people go out to Mitch's places and everywhere else that's participating, drink some Coney Island, not only great for your taste buds, makes you feel good, but it also supports a much larger cause that's really helping bring back not only our industry, but jobs and the city as a whole. So it's really about these types of partnerships and we're grateful, thankful, and it's also a fun initiative. That's great. Hey, Mitch, uh, you as a seasoned operator, what's a question that you have going on now uh, with Andrew for like regulations or policy or something that, that you, you might be having a conversation about? Sure. Um, I could ask Andrew what he feels the likelihood uh, that the bill would pass that he's just speaking about in terms of the reform of the punitive uh, fines that restaurants get for for uh, infractions that are not life-threatening. What do you think, Andrew? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, these are the types of, you know, issues that come up all the time. You know, people reach out with questions. We just did earlier today a big uh, Zoom forum with Senator Schumer because we finally got the restaurant relief fund included in the most recent stimulus, which is going to give grants to bar owners, to restaurant owners, to help them with their rent, their payroll, their vendor expenses. And, you know, having the support of people like Mitch and Rachel and others really allows us to do our work. And we get all types of questions. A lot of stuff is big picture, um, but then also stuff is like really in the weeds, you know, so it's from when can I apply for this restaurant relief? How am I going to be eligible? When am I going to get the money? But then we get, you know, technical stuff about the width of people's 
sidewalk cafes or roadway seating? And is that compliant where someone just reached out to us because they need someone to help them, you know, build an app because they want to continue to increase their takeout and delivery sales? So the questions really run the gamut from big picture to just more specific. And that's what we're here for. And the more that we hear from Mitch and others about the challenges that they face or the opportunities, the better we can help provide support for those opportunities or those challenges. And they help inform our advocacy and inform the type of support that we can provide people. Great. And Rachel, since it's a beer show, uh, what are you drinking or what, what should I be drinking tonight? Oh, well, I, I thought you'd never ask. Uh, I cracked open a beach beer a few minutes ago when I was when I was on mute when Andrew was talking because I just couldn't wait any longer. It was sitting here getting warm. Um, so beach beach beers are Coney Island seasonal. I, I spoke about Mermaid and Merman, which are our two flagships, but our seasonal, which is relatively new, it's been around about two years. Uh, super super easy drinking Kolsch. Um, it's, it pours a beautiful golden color, and the nose is just as simple as the beer is. You just get some some really nice uh, aromas from the malt, um, and it just finishes really, really crisp and really lends to the name. It's it's beach beer. So I, I enjoyed this beer last summer, all summer, just in the park uh, on my fire escape because there wasn't many other places to go. Um, and I'll probably end up doing the same this year, except hopefully at a bar or a rooftop or somewhere of the like. Great. And Mitch, uh, tell us one of your one of your bars where you're going to go get a drink next. Well, actually, I'm I'm in Charleston at the moment, so I will uh, go to my bar in Charleston called Uptown Social, um, and that's um, Charleston is completely open for business. It's been at 100 percent occupancy now for months, and they just lifted the curfew about two weeks ago, so we're able to be open until two o'clock in the morning. So I'll be having uh, several beers tonight. Well, that's great. And a big shout out to our friend Tank Jackson. He's been hosting Sunday uh, farm and chef barbecue events at Lo-Fi Brewing down in Charleston. I don't know if you ever heard of that, but sure um, have. there's some good people there. They have one more event this uh, this Sunday, April 4th. Um, that's great. And Andrew, you're always out too at restaurants. Where, where are you going to go for your next beer? I don't know. Well, I'm on the Upper West Side, so I should go to one of Mitch's bars and drink a Coney Island. Yes, sure. <laughs> Well, th- thank you guys for indulging me. This is a really great little window into, into the policy process, Andrew. Um, you know, w- we forget that it's it's not just complaining, that there's actually people that are trying to really make things better. Can you give us that Winston Churchill quote one more time? Because that made me smile. Do not let a good crisis go to waste. That sums it all up, my friend. <laughs> uh, Rachel, thanks so much for, for, for this initiative, Hops for Hospitality and Coney Island Beer. Mitch, we're definitely going to check out all the bars we haven't been to yet. The Stumble Inn, that, that's, that'll be a new one for me. Um, and Andrew Riggi, uh, Executive Director of the New York City Hospitality Alliance. Um, all those years you put in have really made a difference. I, I do know that you've been very instrumental in keeping the the hospitality industry going during the pandemic. And thanks for giving us more insight into the outdoor dining program. So thanks everybody for joining me. Thanks to our engineer, Armin Spengen and producing intern, Caroline Fox. I'm Jimmy Carboni. I'm the host of Beer Sessions Radio, and we'll catch you next time on Heritage Radio Network. All right, guys. Thank you. Beer Sessions Radio is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network food radio supported by you for our freshest content subscribe to our newsletter 
enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.